Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn and as always it's a pleasure to have your company. A content warning ahead of this episode, we'll be discussing the media reportage of violence and harassment. If you or someone you know is impacted by or experiencing sexual assault or domestic or family violence, please phone 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732. And for counselling, advice or support for men who have anger, relationship or parenting issues, you can call the Men's Referral Service on 1300 766 491. With the verdict delivered for the Heard v Depp defamation case this week, we ask, could the media frenzy have been prevented and did the media report respectfully? It's been hard to avoid the rolling coverage of the high-profile defamation case between former couple and actors Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. The live-streamed case came to a close on June 1st and included multiple domestic abuse allegations from both parties. To empower journalists to report ethically, in this episode we're going to be highlighting the prestigious Hour Watch Fellowship. The annual program in partnership with the Walkley Foundation trains outstanding journalists on the best practice reporting on violence against women, sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace. To discuss this and more, we're joined by Lynn Evelyn, a former practising lawyer and now a journalist with SBS News. She was also previously a researcher and producer for ABC News's Late Line. Lynn, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Hi, Tina. Thanks for having me. And I understand it's a bit of a return to 2SER for you as well. It is, yes. I um, volunteered at 2SER um, quite a few years ago, but um, yeah, it was a great training for me. Um, while I was in journalism school. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you back. And Helen Pitt is also with us. She's an author and journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald, where she began her career in 1986. She's also previously reported for Euronews, The New York Times and The Bulletin magazine. Helen, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks, Tina. Before we begin today's discussion, I'm curious to, to first ask... Have either of you noticed a recent change in the way that the Australian media reports on violence and harassment against women? Helen, I'm going to go to you first because I I think you've got the greatest length of time to sort of compare in in terms of a yardstick on this. Mm, It's really true, Tina. I've been a journalist 40 years this year. I had my first byline in a Metropolitan Daily 40 years ago. So I sadly would say that not much has changed Uh, domestic violence is such a difficult area to report on, which is indeed why I put my hand up to do this Our Watch Fellowship. Major part that I have a problem with is our defamation laws, unsurprisingly. We, we, especially around the area of of, um, allegations around domestic abuse, sexual assault, uh, everything is alleged, of course. That's not a problem. I don't have a problem in in that's the, the, the legal way of dealing with it. But when, like we had in the Amber Heard case, someone writes an opinion piece, for mm. example, and it is their truth, yet we cannot prove that. I can really relate to the Washington Post editors who actually published this piece because there are lots of problems with 
doing a part of the reason why a, a lot of these allegations are not published is, is a very hard to prove but they are considered highly defamatory and this is such a problem because your truth is your truth especially if you're a, a survivor of any sort of abuse but you have to to be able to publish that you have to prove that in a court of law and that for me, is it's such a difficult thing to do, and it's it's such a vexing question for any journalist. Certainly, for the publisher, an editor of the opinion pages has to run everything by a lawyer before they get published to be sure mm. that they're not defamatory. In the moment, something like that is mentioned, it's usually taken out of the context. So, you know, in this case, she didn't even Amber Heard didn't write the headline of the story, which was one of the major issues around it. Um, and 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 this would be probably a, probably would have been a problem if it was published in the Sydney Morning Herald or any other other media outlet because you know we as media um, practitioners are after the sensational are after the the the, the headline grabbing um, story but that's the problem this is a really really vexed question to report on because it's someone's truth and it has to be proved. And and you can't necessarily do that. So really, I've got to say, in 40 years, not much has changed in terms of making it easier for victims to speak out. And I could only think that this this recent case is not going to do any any favours in, 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 in terms of encouraging people to speak to the media. What about you, Lynn? What have you seen? Uh, have you seen much of a difference over the last decade at least? I might just maybe go through a little bit of the research that I learned during the Our Watch Fellowship, if, if that's okay. Please do. So in 2016, there was national research that was done by Our Watch and ANROSE, which is the Australia's national research agenda to reduce violence against women. And the research found through the analysis of more than 4,500 reports um, on this particular area, that 15% included blatant victim blaming, 14.8% made blatant excuses for the perpetrator, only 4.3% included appropriate help-seeking information, and it also found that uh, reports on this area really focused in on um, murder, you know, the, the, the concept of murder, the, the, the criminal offence, whereas other aspects such as, you know, emotional abuse, threats, sexual harassment, that was all but invisible. So mm. I think it's it's quite important to highlight this particular research. Um, I mean, it is now six years old. Um, I, I, I mean, I would say, generally speaking, since the Me Too movement really took off around the world, uh, I think there is perhaps a bit more awareness um, in relation to reporting on sexual harassment, sexual harassment in the workplace and, uh, you know, more awareness about about sensitive, uh, fair reporting. Uh, But there is still a way to go. Um, And I think it would be really interesting to see, you know, what the results of um, research like this would be if it was done now. It's interesting to note as well. I mean, the meet with the advent of the Me Too movement, we we haven't seen the same sort of repercussions or the same sort of groundswell. I think here in Australia, we might have seen a little bit of that with uh, the, with last year, more so in I guess in Canberra, away from the entertainment industry, more so in our political system. 
16 journalists, it's it's important to note 16 journalists will be training in the Hour Watch Fellowship this year. Uh, this week, the uh, 2022 fellows were announced, and that includes you, Helen. So congratulations. I know you're really looking forward to, to doing this training. Lynn, as an Hour Watch fellow from last year, can can you tell us a little bit more about the program and, and maybe give Helen an idea of what she can expect? <laughs> Sure. So the focus of this program is really just on deepening knowledge on reporting on violence against women and children. Um, Clearly, the research has shown that the media has a really, really important role to play um, in relation to attitudes and beliefs um, about violence against women. Um, And, you know, the way that um, the media frames the news, informs audiences, you know, responses, um, emotional responses to cases and, and how they attribute responsibility. Um, so as part of the Our Watch Fellowship, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to, to attend three retreats um, with yeah, 16 other journalists from around the country. And it was just great because we, we got to, you know, t- obviously uh, have lots of discussions, really in-depth discussions about uh, how news is framed, looking at previous reporting, um, hearing from experts in the area, you know, looking at data um, and and also looking at how important things like, you know, the sources, who you talk to uh, in your stories can impact on, on the way that a story is framed. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was a really great experience and um, Helen will be able to um, yeah, get involved in all of that. Is there something that you've picked up from that training that you, you now use in your everyday reporting? I think the, the main things, I think it's really just understanding the evidence behind it all. So, like, for example, we talked quite a bit about what drives violence against women and I think you know, one of the common misconceptions is that um, what drives violence is, uh, you know, alcohol or drugs or, um, you know, somebody who has a mental illness. Uh, But, you know, what what this, the program taught me was that it really is gender inequality that drives violence against women. So, like, for example, you know, they, they talked about that uh, you know, mental is- issues that it doesn't cause violence. In fact, people who have mental illnesses, uh, they're more likely than the general population to be victims of violence. And they're actually equally as likely to be perpetrators compared with the general population. Helen, what impact do you think resources like this are, are having in Australian newsrooms? If you if you were to harken back to say twenty years ago, do you think it's a real game? It's going to be a real game changer for newsrooms. Well, I I do think the Me Too movement was a game changer for newsrooms because any of us that have been around newsrooms for decades will know the sort of inappropriate sexual behaviour that took place in them in years past. And I'm not saying that they don't anymore, but we are certainly more 
um, eager to report them when they happen. Um, the Harvey Weinstein op- situation opening the floodgates here to, mm. as you would probably know, the Sydney Morning Herald carrying out investigations on people like Don Burke mm-hmm. and um, Justice Dyson Hayden that actually had huge impact on women in the workforce, women that had been um, victims of their behaviour and and just certain, certainly an awareness of what is and isn't appropriate behaviour. You know, things were laughed off in newsrooms. You know, they're probably like pretty gallows humour sorts of places. Women, you know, only started coming into them really in the last 50 or 60 years. So there's that little, lot of locker room style talk that went on and banter that went on in years past that doesn't really happen as much at least anymore in the newsrooms I've been a part of anyway. But certainly the ones I started in, they were completely inappropriate things that were said and done. And and so if that's anything to go by, like over this, that, that is one thing that's changed in the 40 or so years that I've been a journalist. A, way more women, and B, women that are prepared to, to say that is not okay I mean, I was going to ask as well. I mean, you've also seen uh, up until recently, I mean, you had uh, a female editor-in-chief, mm. only the third one in, in the Sydney Morning Herald's history, um, in, in Lisa Davies. So, I mean, do you think even having having a woman, say, at the top, has that been a, a complete game changer oh, as well? Oh, look, of course, of course. More in visible the women. Culture, yeah. the, the, the more visible women you can have in senior roles, the more likely this is this sort of behaviour is going to be stopped. It's not just about the culture of the newsroom, though. It's the culture of the country or the culture of the place when they're willing to stand up and say that is not okay. Like it's a bit of a zeitgeist thing because the media always follows the zeitgeist of the mm-hmm. moment, I think you would be fair to say. So the moment the New York Times and and um, and the New Yorker were really leading the way on these sorts of stories in the States, we followed suit. And it's not to say that their stories were not around or kicking around, but the, the, the appetite from readers was there to think, oh, well, what's, what's happening in Australia on that front? So, of course, you follow where the interest goes. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, a lot of legwork to back up those kinds of investigations. That's been a groundswell of, of support for, for hearing those stories out. So that that is a terrific change, I've got to say. And that's just across the board. That's just not – that's from small media organisations to large ones. Everyone is mindful of those sorts of stories and, and people are more game to tell them too. Mm. Well, I guess seeing those that have come before them, it's it sort of – propels them a little bit more or gives them a little bit more confidence that they're not going to be facing public ruin and and ridicule if they come forward with these stories. We've seen many survivors confide in journalists. That can only happen when we have that level of trust and a, a respected fourth estate, really. Have we seen an improvement, do you think, in Australian journalists in terms of the trauma informed reporting? Uh, Lynn, I'll go to you first. I think that um, we have seen more and more so, uh, you know, reporting which really puts the victim's story front and centre. I mean, the the research really tells us um, that very, very few uh, people come forward with allegations um, that are, you know, deliberately fabricated. Um, And so I think that, you know, there's been 
you know, a lot of work in ensuring that um, when, you know, victim survivors do come forward to journalists, that their stories are, are told sensitively um, and with, with nuance um, and, um, you know, other violence against women experts are also consulted as, as part of that process. Uh, so, so I think in that respect, yes. To you, Helen? One of the reasons I wanted to do the Our Watch training was earlier this year I was selected to do jury duty and it was a sexual assault case. Now, I've been a court reporter over the years and I know the things you can and can't report on. Um, but what sort of shocked me in that circumstance was how much of the onus of proof is on the victim that this takes place. And and as Lynn said, it's uh, my, 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 my reaction is to, A, believe the person that's bothered taking this case to court for a start, and then, B, just that um, I, yeah, it's very rare that people make this stuff up, but the, the, the situation is, is so harrowing and hard. I, I, I didn't realise how traumatic it is retelling the story in a court for, for the victim. And, and in the circumstances that I was in, they were not actually present in court, which is a, a good thing. It was video streamed and the accused was. Now, that wasn't the case in the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing, by the way. You know, that, that for me was always quite, like, shocking for me to see that she was having to be mm. facing her accuser. Mm. And, and also the fact that it was televised, I just could not quite believe it because it did end up being trialled by TikTok. Uh, so I mm. guess my motivator in doing the, the Our Watch Fellowship is, is there a better way dealing with these allegations than the criminal justice system. I don't know the answer, but they see it seems so adversarial. And what's required is a good defence lawyer in, in court. It's not actually the telling of the truth. And you as a jury person have to prove beyond reasonable doubt or believe that the, the defence has proved um, or that the police prosecution has proved beyond reasonable doubt that this person is guilty. And that's, that's very hard to do. And I... That's my frustration. I don't know if it's really working for us. And, and I'm, I'm really interested in finding out if there's research from other countries about another way of doing this. I, I just wanted to jump in there and just add to what Helen's just said. Um, I, I thought what was, uh, you know, interesting about the Amber Heard v Johnny Depp case was that uh, basically Johnny Depp's legal team spent a good part of six weeks with a lot of victim blaming uh, you know you know the, the, a lot of their argument was that she was not the perfect victim and this this speaks all of their arguments basically spoke to what not to do mm. um, when you look at the hour watch reporting so um, it is really hard because if you are a reporter that is reporting on this case um, day in day out, uh, you know, I also find it, you know, difficult uh, to, to, because um, how do you uh, reconcile that, the, the actual, you know, accurate reporting of, of the day uh, versus not feeding in to these tropes that can be very damaging um, yeah. towards women um, who, yeah, suffer from violence? It is remarkable. I thought we as a society had sort of moved on from this sort of 
we needed to find a perfect victim to to really prove a case, and uh, it seems that we haven't really. What do you think the media's role is in terms of preventing violence and harassment against women, Helen? Well, certainly not televising a court case is the first step. Um, I have real problems with with the way that that was reported on because you could you could guarantee a more sensitive reporter that if that that they were, if they were in court following it that it was actually as we call it trauma informed but also just being responsible with what comes out of the the mouth of the the, the lawyers and the people who are in court I I really don't know the answer is the thing I know I I, I I'd like to see a, a way forward, and and, and maybe that maybe it's something like a royal commission, or maybe it's a round table. It's a governmental thing because clearly, look what we've had in Canberra. There is such a problem with this going on, and and I mean it's across the nation, and the, it, it, sexual abuse and assault takes all sorts of different forms. It's a very generic term, really, but we need to be specific as to how we're going to try to prevent each different type of it. But I, I would be either a round table or a summit or something. There's just got to be some way forward to try and improve things. Lynn, some researchers and advocates argue that having police as a primary source at the early stage of, of crime reports can be quite problematic in terms of contextualising uh, violence or, or harassment uh, beyond individual incidents. Now, obviously, there are legal issues with reporting, but should we? do you think we should be mindful of relying on, on legal and, and law experts as primary sources? Yeah, I think that you've raised a great point there. I mean, I think that police and legal experts, they are important sources, but they shouldn't be the only source um, because often uh, what their job is is to look at the crime. So they're really interested in what are the criminal elements of um, a particular incident, uh, whereas things like emotional abuse, uh, put-downs, isolating um, the victim, those are things that don't really get a mention. So I think that, um, yes, you you know, we can consult uh, the police and we should consult the police or other legal experts, but I do think it's really important to speak to violence against women experts as well as uh, victim survivors because they can really help to contextualise what's happened. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network. This week we're talking about the media's reportage of violence and harassment. I'm speaking with the Sydney Morning Herald's Helen Pitt and SBS News's Lynn Evelyn. The defamation case between actors Amber Heard and Johnny Depp, which we've been we've been touching on, I preempt this by saying to listeners, we're, we're not going to be discussing the the case specifically, rather the media's reportage of the case. Overall, do you think? Do you think the media coverage in Australia was responsible from from what you saw of how they covered uh, the case, Helen? Well, no. Um, I think, you know, as I said, it was trial by TikTok and I think there were so many fans of Depp unwilling mm. to hear the other side of the story and vice I mean, not really vice versa, but it was just such a media staged con, um, circus really and I, I just... You know, I know that there was an opportunity for the trial to be moved out of Virginia and to California where it may have had some greater chance to be heard in private, uh, didn't happen. I, I, I just, 
think it's become like a ridiculous frenzy, especially when it's famous people involved. Mm. So, no, I was – in fact, it's one of the reasons I tuned out and it might be why a lot of listeners and readers tuned out because a certain age bracket, I'd say, you know, the under 25 set, definitely listened. And it's the spectacle. It's kind of the Kardashian way of mm. watching a train wreck of people's lives in a sense. But this is not reality TV. This is real. This is no setup. This is real life. And I, I just thought that the whole, again, back to the point of it being televised, it just was so wrong from um, a victim's viewpoint. And, and just as a journalist, I found it, I find that really odd and maybe that's just mm. because I've grown up in Australia where that does not happen but I have lived in the States and I just can't see much benefit to the whole Judge Judy kind of mm. approach because it tends to be more entertainment than mm. than than the court. I mean it really recalled to me, I know you said it was, it's sort of this Kardashian way of, of, of viewing a court case but it really just recalled to me the the hysteria in the mid '90s, really, uh, with um, the O.J. Simpson mm. trial. I mean, mm. it was that sort of level of hysteria mm. that was being being brought about by televising the case, and and really, I think in in both cases you can argue that the outcome was was a complicated one. I think. Well, that's it, and. You have all these people passing judgment on something that they really don't know that much about. You know, they see, they see the spin that's been presented. They see lots of um, memes, and they see you know spoofs. They see lots of things, but not not really like what the 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 real outcome of the case. You know, the implications of 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 that case. So, yeah, it it was definitely very OJ Simpson like, and and almost unreal in the un unravelling of it. Mm. Some media organisations used the Heard and Depp case as, as, as clickbait. Uh, how do you think, how do we get these organisations to, to bring responsibility to their business models? What do you think, Lynn? Um, I think maybe more training in this area, mm. perhaps. I mean, I know that... Um, after we did the um, Our Watch uh, Fellowship last year, we then um, went back to our respective news organisations and did um, uh, newsroom training um, to to sort of bring some of the knowledge that we learnt uh, to to the broader um, organisation. I mean, I think that that would be um, extremely helpful. Um, however, I don't know if there's a will by um, by uh, news organisations to, to to do it. Mm. Helen, no doubt there's been sensationalised reporting of of this televised of this televised case beyond just tabloid and celebrity news. Do you think it's avoidable? Well, unfortunately, the appetite for these sorts of stories is there. Whatever media outlet you are, it, you can be the most highbrow or lowbrow. That there's always going to be an Amber Heard, Johnny Depp kind of story that people are wanting. To follow, and I think we do need to think a lot about the way we write a headline, the way we uh, put um, victim blaming in the words we write, even as a write-off, mm. um, which is you know just the introduction to the thing. I yeah, I I I wish people weren't interested in it, but there's such as it's 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 it's. The, the world that we live in, the 24-7 mm. news cycle. So, yeah, there, there is 
really a requirement on us trying to to be a bit more, not just sensitive, but less sensational about the whole thing. Because in this sort of case, it's always one person's word against the other anyway. So it's it's the sort of classic thing that, that does well on Twitter because there's two different sides of the story. And, and that doesn't mean that um, you can do it responsibly there. You know, a proper big... Um, investigation is probably what's what's required but that takes time and resources and it's much usually easier to ask someone to whip up a 500 word opinion piece and what they think of the whole thing so um therein lies the problem well on the topic of opinion pieces sky news journalist jack houghton wrote a piece in the last few days in which he stated media outlets claiming misogyny is the reason johnny depp prevailed over his ex-wife amber heard in a u.s court have lost the trust of their readers. He says that some legacy media outlets, the editorial support, clearly swung in Heard's favour. Arguably, we also saw some media editorials swing in Depp's favour. Lynn, what's your take on this view of bias? I think that, you know, I've I've read articles, uh, you know, about this particular case and um, I, I think that, you know, th- this case... The, the, the critical issue, as, as Helen mentioned, is that, it, you know, it was televised. Um, it was all out there for um, anybody to pick up. And uh, what we saw was actually um, a, a lot of um, people on social media uh, sort of taking that role of reporting on this case. And, and a lot of those people were actually uh, Johnny Depp supporters. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the the reporting that I've seen on uh, legacy media or established media, um, you know, it, it really was, you know, consultative of of uh, experts in the area, um, and 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 looked at and put in in into the stories data about you know domestic violence. You come from a, a journalist and law background. Now, Australia has very strict defamation laws. How do you think this impacts the media's role in reporting ethically on, on violence and harassment, as, as Helen referenced earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think Australia's defamation laws um, have long been criticised for being too onerous. Um, and I think that this case is another case um, where... For victims, um, it will have that sort of chilling effect where mm. I think there's already many reasons why victims don't want to come forward and speak out. And this really adds, um, you know, to that list, this threat of, of litigation. Um, and Australia's uh, litigation laws are far more onerous um, than uh, American law. Uh, you know, we don't have the equivalent of the First Amendment or even a Bill of Rights. Um so um, I, I think that this this case will, you know, contribute to to victims not wanting to to speak out mm. and not wanting to speak out to journalists. I think you can blame the legacy media all you like. You can blame the irresponsible new media. Not not saying that all new media is new, but you can you can blame the media for that. But ultimately, the Amber Heard Johnny Depp situation, it came down to the decision of 12 jurors and what the jurors thought of the case. So, you know, whether or not they were reading, when you when you 
become a juror, you're told that, you know, you really shouldn't be engaging with the media, that you they take your phone off you, for example. There's no way you can Google something when you're in the court. Um, they, they really ask you not to do that, in fact. I don't know if that's the same way in how it works in the States, but certainly here you're really encouraged to not – well, you can't talk about the case with anyone except your 12 – um, with your fellow 11 jurors, even when you when someone walks out of the room, you can't talk about it unless they're not unless they're everyone is there. So there's this is actually a really interesting um, case on how we we try and have a black ban on jurors around cases that are um, very sensitive about these sorts of issues, but it's almost impossible when it was something like this because, of course, you're going to be hearing about it left everywhere you go. But I, I and I don't know how much um, the jurors were sort of not reading or participating in the media. But I think it would be very difficult to have avoided the media in that case. There's been analysis on what this this case means for the the Me Too movement. Do you think? Australian media will need to be cautious in, in airing their views that this case has, has shifted the conversation as such, Helen? Well, I think our views, whoever we are in the media, need to be informed by the people who are either the victims of the violence of domestic abuse or sexual sexual violence, whatever it is. I mean, really, that's where the respect needs to be given and continued to be given. So like, our opinion on it shouldn't really matter. Again, it should come back to more straight-out reporting of how to prevent it, I think, in the first case. So really, things like Our Watch, just an... Jess um, Hill's amazing See What You Made Me Do. There's people doing extraordinarily good stuff out there and we all need to be made aware of, of A, how we don't become a victim ourselves, and B, you know, what to do when you think someone you know might be. So they're things that we need to be really sensitive about as we move forward in, in, in you know, a, a world in which, yeah, you've got to be a little... You'd, think would be a little more cautious if you had suffered that sort of any any sort of abuse. Lynn? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that um, we should continue to, to do this reporting and to, um, you know, really try and uh, put, um, you know, victims front and centre and ensuring that um, we put context around our reporting. In future reportage about violence and harassment, especially when it comes to high-profile cases, what do you think can be improved, Lynn? Well, I mean, I, th- I think it would help if it wasn't televised um, because, you know, as Helen mentioned, it, it made it made this case into a huge media circus and, uh, you know, you, you've got to add on to it that we're, we're talking about two people who are, you know, big Hollywood stars. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, the fact that, you know, if it, if it wasn't televised, it, it would it would help a lot. Um, and I think that, you know, there was a lot of reporting I saw on the sensational aspects of this case um, because there was this airing out of, of the private lives of, of these two um, high-profile people. Um, but if we strip that back to what... It, what it was, which was a case, uh, it was a defamation case focused on allegations of domestic violence and looking at what was the evidence that was put before the court and focusing on those sorts of elements um, 
I, th I think that that would make for, for, you know, more informed reporting in this area. Yeah, that, that's very true, Lynn. What actually got talked about was not necessarily anything that much was before the court. And so it was everyone's opinion. Oh, Johnny's innocent. Oh, Amber's crazy. That sort of thing, that sort of feeding of all of the, the sort of supplementary information by watching the case was was really the problem actually it for me and and it is an interesting case in that we have had a lot of new media coverage on you know from Instagram to TikTok to Twitter and that's where laws around subjudice aren't you know, cases before the court you weren't able to really report well, you could report on what was said in the court. And that's still the case here. But a lot of that coverage was nothing to do with anything that was said in the court. It was all said outside of the court. And that's that's people's opinions from observing something that they really know very little about. For further resources on reporting about violence and harassment, you can visit the Our Watch media website, media.ourwatch.org.au. The Dart Centre for Journalism and Trauma also has resources on trauma-informed reporting. If any of the content in this episode has brought anything up for you, please reach out or speak to someone you trust. You can get support by contacting 1800 Respect on 1800 737 732. On that note, I'd like to thank both Helen Pitt... Thank you. And Lynn Evelyn. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us on Fourth Estate this week. And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my producer, Marlene Even, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Tina Quinn. Please do stay well, stay safe and catch us next week on Fourth Estate.